Sorry for cutting anybody off that's still praying. You can always pray after church as well. I'm going to get going, though. For those that are, are here, we're going to get going. Um, I'm going to fly through as just kind of a refresher, Genesis 1 through 11, super fast. Okay, we've talked about chiasms. Can somebody give me another word for chiasms? What's another word for chiasms? Patterns. All right, sweet. So patterns, chiasms, they are very, very similar in words. And in the Hebrews, they, they go and they put chiasms into the scripture in a lot of ways. And they do it to, it's almost like a treasure hunt. Hey, we're going to show you something cool that's hidden, buried in the text, that if you're just going to read right over the top, you might miss. Okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about some of those patterns. So you have a creation story where you have Adam and then Noah. And so I'm going to talk about some of this. So you have God separating the waters, making dry ground, opens the windows of heaven, makes birds, beasts, plants, etc. God separates waters, makes dry ground, opens windows of the ark, brings out birds and the beasts to the new plants with Noah. Right? Adam was made from the soil. Noah was called a man of the soil. God puts him in a garden. Noah plants a garden. You got God telling him to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God telling him the same over here with Noah and his sons. God gives dominion to people in both of those stories. Then we jump into the story with Adam and Eve and then Noah and Ham that kind of balance each other where you have Adam and Eve not trusting the father and choosing to take things into their own hands. You've got Ham not trusting his father, choosing to take things in his own hands. Adam and Eve seeing and taking the fruit from the tree. Ham seeing and taking the fruit from the family tree. Right? Adam and Eve sin against their father. Ham sins against his father. The serpent who uncovers nakedness. Ham who uncovers nakedness. God who covers over Adam and Eve's nakedness. Shem and Japheth who cover over Noah's nakedness. And instead of immediate death, the father voices a curse. And there's mercy, there's grace, there's a possibility for redemption down the line. Instead of immediate death with Ham, there's a curse. But there's a possibility of redemption down the line. Then you go into the next stories. You have Cain and Abel and the Tower of Babel stories. And you have Cain who can't stop himself, doesn't trust God's warning. You have people that don't trust God's directions to go fill the earth and multiply. You've got Cain who's trying to acquire more. You've got the people who want to acquire a name for themselves. You've got Cain who acts by his strength instead of following God's words. Babel acting by their strength instead of following God's words. Both become tragedies. God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. Shem and Japheth cover Noah's nakedness. You have Cain who's sent out to Nod, which is, means wander. You have the people that are sent out scattered. And it's fascinating if you look at it. That part, I don't think, is actually necessarily a curse. God's like, no, I told you to go and multiply, fill the earth. And so he's like, okay, Cain, go out and do the thing I told you to do in the first place. Babel, go out and do the thing that I told you to do in the first place. So he spreads them out again. And then with both of them, you end up with genealogies. We talked about how in a Western mind, we skip through genealogies because we can't say their names, right? And yet, there's so many like good little nuggets if you like, dig in. Like, for instance, the Methuselah thing that his name means his death shall bring. And then you do the math and you realize... Oh, he died the same year as the flood. That's fascinating, right? That's cool. But then you start looking further and you see that if you do an oral tradition by generation, you would say man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down and he'll teach. His death shall bring the despairing rest. Isn't that cool? And you see that 
you have this genealogy that goes from Adam all the way to Noah. And we could focus in on any of those names, but for whatever reason, in Genesis, they said, no, no, we're going to go all the way to Noah because there's something special about this man named Noah. And we talked about how with this genealogy, he was righteous and blameless before God. God says, I can work with this dude, right? Then you have, again, later after the Tower of Babel, another story of timeline, of genealogy, all right? This one doesn't make the sweet story, but there's a lot of things that are in there that you can find. But one thing I want to just focus on, he goes from Noah all the way down to Abram. And again, it's this highlight of, hey, Abram is highlighted. There's something special about this man. There's something that says, I can work with this guy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what is it about Abram where God says, I can work with that, all right? So we're going to get there in a second, but before, I just want to give you the visual this way. Genesis 1 to 5, you have a creation story with Adam and Eve. And it starts with God, who knows when to stop creating, says it's good, and then he rests, right? Genesis 6 to 11, it starts with a creation story with Noah, where God knows when to stop destroying. And even in his destroying, he's creating. And he says it's good, and then there's rest. You've got a fall that happens right afterwards with Adam and Eve where they see and they take and there's a curse. And then with Noah, you've got Ham who sees, he takes, and there's a curse. The strength story of Cain and Abel where he can't stop, can't have the self-control, he's defiant, and then he ends up wandering. He tries to make his name greater by cutting off the line of Abel. You've got a strength story with Babel where they can't stop. They're defiant of what God is saying. They're trying to build build a tower, build a city, and God scatters them. They were trying to make a name for themselves. And so you've got all of this that comes down where you have these stories that match back and forth. And then you get to this genealogy, right? And not the genealogy that I mentioned, but there's another genealogy of Cain in there. And we talked a little bit about how you've got this line of Cain, male, 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 female, not ama, right? And we talked a little bit about how I believe and I agree with the Hebrew rabbis, that Naamah was probably Noah's wife, which is this beautiful idea of like God saying, you know what, I've got Seth's line, but I still want to redeem Cain. The amount of patience to him wanting to redeem bloodlines is crazy. So I, you look at that, and then you're like, okay. And then you look at genealogy over here, right? You've got one son in the genealogy, and then the other son's genealogies reveal women. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you look at this, you see that there's this pattern from 1 through 5 and this pattern, 6 through 11. And I would bet, even though I can't find them all in this minute, but I bet if you joined me and looked, I bet you we would find that there's chiasms, that there's patterns in every one of those stories. But the cool thing is, if you look at all of that, the pivot area, the very middle verses, center of what I would call the preface, Genesis is when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. His name was Noah and, uh, and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. And in the middle of that, this is a story about Noah, which his name means he rests. And I like the fact that like the center of like this story and this story from 1 through 5 and 6 through 11 is a story of, and by the way, there was Noah and there's rest. You like, look at, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's a, 
a creation story in Genesis 1 and a creation story in Genesis 2. And you know what the pivot point of Genesis 1 and 2 is? And on the seventh day, God rested. And you're like, I think he's trying to get us to this place where, like, rest is important. Right? All right, we'll keep coming back to that for the rest of the time that I'm alive. All right. Also, you're going to need to kick me in the pants because I'm not always great at resting myself. So I will do my best to be a better example. All right, why did God choose Abraham? Before we even get to why did God choose Abraham, I want to step back a little bit because in genealogy, as I said, there's stuff that's hidden in there that sometimes we just miss and we're like, that was confusing, so I'm going to move on. Um, We had looked at it and we said that at the end of the line from Noah ended with who? That's a question. Noah down to Abram, right? So there's something special about Abram, right? And yet, if you were to look at this, there's something in Hebrew called which is, and these are the generations of. So in, in Genesis, you'll see this phrase a bunch of times. So in 5.1, it's about Adam, and then Noah, and then the sons of Noah, Terah, Isaac, Ishmael, Esau, and Jacob. You would think that it would be Abraham and not Terah, Right? I mean, if you were to look at that, we don't know tons about Torah, do you? Yeah? Yes? No? I don't know. Like, I don't think of, like, the patriarchs be like, oh, yeah, you know, God of Torah and God of Isaac and Jacob. It's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so we're like, okay, but why in the genealogies do we say Torah here? And so I wanted to stop for a minute before we get into the rest of Genesis 12 because there's some stuff in there. But first, Joshua 24, 2 through 4, when Joshua's recounting to the people, he said, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, um, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Ah, so you've got Terah who was worshipping other gods. So it wasn't the God of Terah. Okay. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave him Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. All right? So let's take a little look at Terah. At the end of Genesis 11 is where we're at. So when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nora lived 100 and 19 years, and had other sons and daughters. Had other sons and daughters. We've heard that before with Adam and Eve, not so much with Noah, and only had the three, right? And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. All right? Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and and Haran. So we've got three kids. Now, generally, when you have three kids that are up there, the firstborn is the first one named, right? But we talked about this the other week where we had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in that story, we concluded Japheth was actually the oldest, Ham was the youngest, and Shem was in the middle, right? But it's by the line that is chosen that we go first, and then really the most important ones to the story, and then you go from there, right? So you have Shem, who's middle, then Ham, who's last, and then Japheth, who was actually the oldest. And I will talk about it, but I would suggest that we have the same thing happening here, 
where Haran is the oldest, and then Abram, and then Nahor. We'll get to that in a minute. So, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless before she was not able to conceive. Uh, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, uh, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. That's a mouthful, right? And you're like, okay, so we're bouncing around. You've got all these names. We've got this genealogy, and all of a sudden we've got these women, which, I mean, I could show you that, that genealogy again. Like, who remembers uh, Peleg's daughters? Right? Like, who remembers Reu's wife? We don't know these things, right? We don't know them. Because in genealogies, we know the males. And so if the females are in there, there's like, hey, pay attention. This person is important to the story, right? And here you've got in the middle of all of this, you've got Iska. Who knows the other stories in the Bible about Iska? She's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So what's her importance? And then you look at it and you're like, okay, wait. So let me see here. So we've got Haran, who became the father of Lot. Okay, so gotcha. We got, he's married with a son, right? Well, generally speaking, who ends up getting married first? Oldest gets first, right? So this is partly why I say Haran is the oldest. So the oldest would be married first. He's got, uh, he's got um, Lot, but then later on we also find out that he has Milka and Iska as daughters, Right? So you've got this guy who's got three kids, and then he dies while his, his dad is still alive, right? So Abram's brother, oldest brother, has a marriage, three kids, dies. We all on the same page? And then you sit here and you're looking like, wait a second, but Nahor's wife was Milka. Wait, so he married his niece? I, that's exactly what it says, Right? In this day and age, you're like, that's gross. That's weird. Don't do that, right? I'm not going to ever encourage you to marry your niece, young guys. Um, Put it there. So you've got this situation, right? And you're like, well, that's really janky, okay? But let's keep going. All right, so you have Abraham, Abram and Nahor both married. We're going to look at that sentence in a second. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Da, 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 the father of Milcah and Iscah. And then we jump back in verse 30 to now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Why do we have that there? Like, isn't this fascinating? Like, why don't we put this verse with Sarai up above? Like, you're starting off with the paragraph of you got Sarai. Why don't you put this little nugget that we all obviously need to know that she's barren next to the part of Sarai, Right? Now, the Hebrew rabbis pretty much are all in agreement that it's because they see Iska as Sarai. And I agree with them. Okay? So let's, we'll break it down in a second. But you've got the possibility. I want you to just give me a, 
the possibility in your head say, okay, let's just say that those two are the same person. So now you've got two brothers that married two nieces. And then you've got Lot, who's obviously the girl's brother. Is that weird to you guys? Right? In some ways, it's weird. In some ways, it's awesome. And I'll get there in a minute, too. All right, so let's look here. You've got Shem and Japheth. And it says, Shem and Japheth, he took a blanket. Okay? Just like Abram and Nahor, he took wives. So that verse that I told you before, in English, we've translated as Abram and Nahor both married. That's what it is in English. In Hebrew, it's Abram and Nahor, he took wives. Now you're like, oh, well, they translated it to English, and that's weird. And it doesn't make sense grammatically in English. So that's why we said they just got married, right? But there's a Hebrew concept that I want us to walk through with it, okay? So Shem and Japheth, he took a blanket. Now what this story with Shem and Japheth, he took a blanket, is about is you just had Ham do unspeakable things to his dad. And Shem and Ham, or Shem and Japheth said, hey, Japheth, you know what we need to do is we need to cover our dad's nakedness. Like, it's the right thing for us to do, is we need to come in and we need to cover our dad. We need to honor our dad by covering them. And so the idea of them saying Shem and Japheth, he took a blanket, it's this idea that Shem said, hey, you know what, we need to do this thing, and Japheth was of the same mind. It's a unity of mind. It's saying... We are one in agreeing that this needs to happen on behalf of our dad. We need to honor our dad this way, okay? Now, it's Shem's idea in the Hebrew culture because he's mentioned first, all right? And then there's this benevolent act that was the right thing to do. Flip side, you've got Abram and Nahor. He took wives, which means it's Abram's idea. And Nahor was like, yeah, we should marry the nieces. That's a great idea, right? But there's this benevolent thing that happens where it's the right thing to do. Now, in this culture, in a patriarchal culture especially, it's the father who is the covering for his kids. He is the protection. He is the provider. He is the one that is like the all, like he is the boundary for his children. Like he's the one that's going to make sure that they're okay. Right? And so it's his job. But what happened to Lot? And Iska and Milka's dad, he died. And the assumption is, Lot is younger, right? Can't really take care of his two sisters. He's not going to marry his two sisters. And so it's almost this concept of Abraham saying, hey, you know what, Nahor, you know what we need to do is we, we need to honor our father and we need to honor our dead older brother and we need to take care of our nieces. We need to bring them in. And it's this, it's kind of like one of these foundational moments that you end up getting the kinsman redeemer situation later on in, in the Old Testament, where you have somebody that's redeeming family lines, right? We see kinsman redeemer stuff all the time. Ruth and Boaz is one of those great stories of a kinsman redeemer. But here you have Abram doing that. And what's the one thing that we know about Sarai? Anybody? Childless, she's barren, right? And now if you start doing all of your math, she was barren at the time, I like that. She wasn't eventually barren. 
she started off barren, though. This is the only thing that we know at this point. And the assumption is because it's like, hey, we're going to put this at the very start of this story. Before we even, like, get into chapter 12 and all of the calling of Abram, like, we know that she's barren. And part of that culture at that time is, you know, when a woman starts menstruating, they're eligible to get married. So the assumption is because she's much older when you do the math, that for whatever reason, she was never married, and it's probably tied to this barrenness. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not going to get into all of those details. You can thank me later for that. You can do your own digging. But the cool thing is you've got a man that says, okay, you know what? There's one of the daughters is barren, and we know that she's barren, and then there's another daughter. And Abram is the second in charge, and he's also the one that had the idea. So, like, historically and Hebrew-wise, like, he would be the one to be able to pick a wife. And who does he pick? picks Sarai. He picks the barren one, right? We've been talking about all of these times of Cain and Abel and Tower of Babel where all they're trying to do is make a name for themselves. And here you have a man that says, you know what? The right thing, brother, that we do is we honor our dad and we honor older brother and we should marry our nieces and make sure that they've got a covering. We are going to cover over them. We're going to make sure that they're protected. And you know what? I'm going to take the barren one, which means... He is losing his line. Think about this. He's saying, you know what? I am willing to get rid of my whole lineage because the right thing for me to do is to redeem my dead brother's daughter. Isn't that fascinating? He had the right to say, I'm taking Milka. I'm the older brother. I'm going to carry on the line. He says, no, I'm actually going to take the other one. Isn't that fascinating? And God looks down and he says, this guy, I can work with this guy. A guy that's more about redeeming lines than building a name for himself. Whoo, is that a challenge to us sometimes, right? Do we care more about building our name or do we care more about redeeming his kingdom? Ali had that challenge today, like, hey, there's brokenness all around us. How much time do we spend trying to redeem that brokenness? Do we care more about that brokenness or do we care more about what we're going to do for us and our family and for our kids and our grandkids? Whew, it's a challenge, right? Terah's story. You've got Terah, father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. I think Haran is the oldest who had the father of Lot, Milcah, and Iska. I believe, well, we all obviously know that Abram marries Sarai and Nahor marries Milcah. Okay. Let's look at what their names mean. Terah means wanderer, station. Haran means mountaineer. Nahor means horse, dry, hot. Abram means exalted father, which is this fascinating thing. His name means exalted father, and he's choosing the barren woman. Not crazy? So beautiful. God does the things that are impossible to do. Lot means veil. We'll talk about that when we get to Lot later. We've got Milka, which means queen. Sarai, which means princess. Iska, which means to see in Hebrew and supposedly means my princess in Chaldean, but I'm having a hard time affirming that. So you can dig yourself. The fascinating thing is to see and princess, but I love the fact that you have queen and princess tied to each other, which makes me, again, affirm that's partly how the Hebrew rabbis got to the place of saying, wait a second, these two are actually the same person. All right, God is about redeeming a lot of bloodlines. You've got Abram, who marries Sarai, and I think Iska, right? Haran's daughter. 
You've got Nahor, who marries Milcah, Haran's daughter. Isaac, who marries Rebekah, Nahor's great, uh, granddaughter. You've got Jacob, who marries Leah and Rachel, Nahor's great-granddaughters. Boaz, who marries Ruth, who's the descendant of Lot. Right? And so here you have Terah and his three sons, but out of Abraham, the chosen line, he redeems the males and the females from his two brothers and brings them back together. Isn't that cool? Right? You want to talk about bloodlines. You keep going. You see how Seth was chosen, but I believe God wanted to redeem Cain's line. Shem was chosen, but God wants to redeem Ham and Japheth. Abram was chosen. I think God also wants to redeem Nahor and Haran. Isaac was chosen, but I also believe that God wants to redeem Ishmael. Jacob and Israel chosen, but I think God wants to redeem tribes. Like God is in the place of wanting to redeem and to restore and to reach every man, woman, child across the earth. He wants to restore. He wants to redeem. And you see these in these stories and these bloodlines all the way back. Some things I want you to just take a minute to reflect on. Are we trying to build God's story or our story? Are we walking by our strength or by his spirit? I think time and time again, we're going to see stories, Old Testament, New Testament, where people keep trying to do things on their own strength. And they keep trying to do things on their own strength and it falls apart. Like even, we'll talk about Abraham with Isaac and Ishmael, right? Abraham's like, hey, there's this promise on my life. We're going to try to make this thing happen with our own strategies. We end up getting Ishmael out of the situation. Known as a wild donkey of a man. Right? Man knows a pit of strength. And then you've got Isaac who comes, who's, again, a child of promise, a child of the Spirit. So you have this strength versus spirit thing that happens over and over again that we're already starting to see. Are we living a life where God says, yep, I can work with that? I mean, that's a, it's a weighty challenge. It's a weighty thought. Do we spend more of our time saying, man, God, let your kingdom come? Or do we spend more of our time saying, man, what do I need to do to, to build my kingdom? It's a hard challenge. If we're honest with ourselves, right? One of them, God keeps skipping over because he keeps looking over and over and over again for who cares more about my kingdom than theirs. I can use that. I can bless that. I can bless the entire earth through that. Ah. Who are we of one mind with in order to share in his goodness to those around us? Who are we in our lives, whether it's this church, whether it's family, whether it's friends, that we come in agreement and say, you know what, this might be the hard thing, but this is, this is the right thing for us to do. This is the good thing we need to do to cover our family's brokenness, to cover our neighbor's shame. If you're like, I'm not doing that in my life, man, I encourage us as a, as a community, we need to. We need to, right? Like we need to be proactive and intentional to, who can we help redeem? Who can we help restore? Man, I want to be about those things. Going all the way back to where we started today, John 17. 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Like I love that as Jesus is getting ready for the cross, his mind is on unity. He's on, his mind is, who can I partner with that we as one can cover? Right? Like he is inviting us into that same oneness. So not only is it a horizontal unity that like I'm inviting our church to be a part of, of who can we bless and redeem? The only reason why we can do that is because Jesus first did it with us. And he said, hey, I invite you into oneness with me. That, hey, I've got this idea. It's this great idea. I'm going to partner with you. Because he's like, you guys, you guys, you guys are my partner. You guys are the ones that are worthy to be my partner. And it's not on our own worthiness, right? I'm not, I'm not going there. But he's made us in his likeness, and he loves us. And he's like, I want to partner with them to help redeem and restore and set the world back. I'm going to ask, uh, can I have three adults come on up and hand out some of this? I'm going to throw up these questions while um, they're handing out communion. I want you to just take a few minutes thinking about what Jesus has done on the cross for us, the unity that he's inviting us in, and some of these questions about if we are more about our story or his story.
Sometimes we, we want to make a name that's great for us. We care more about our name than yours. I'm thankful for your incredible patience with us, your mercy with us. And Father, we, we repent of the times where we put ourselves on the throne. for the times that I don't trust your word and I try to make your story happen. God, I'm thankful that you you speak to us. You speak words of life and promises. God, sometimes you give us dreams and visions for the future. Sometimes you put words in each other's mouths as we pray over each other where, where we hear, oh, that's what God's doing in my life. And then we turn around and immediately try to do it on our own strength. Give us the courage to be patient and wait for you to fulfill the words that you have spoken over us. God, give us the courage to care more about your lineage than ours. Care more about your kingdom than ours. Father, I thank you that every time you create, you keep creating good stuff. thankful that when you, you created us in our mother's wombs, you smile, you said, ah, oh, this one's good. This one's good. Ah, oh, this one's my best yet. I like this one. This one's funny. You know, this one's going to be quirky, but that's okay. Ah, oh, this one, I can't wait to reveal knowledge to this one. I can't wait until this one understands freedom. I can't wait until this one desires to serve I can't wait to show this one the water I can't wait to climb mountains with this one God I'm so thankful that you desire intimacy that you enjoy the time in the middle not just the big moments of our life but you actually take pleasure in us God may we know your beautiful redemption May we know how you pursue us. You want us to know you fully, even as we are fully known by you. So God, I just ask that you would help us do that. We want to be one with you. We want to come in unity with you. Heavenly Father, help us have eyes to see the people in our lives that we can come in one mind and cover over their nakedness their shame, their guilt, their fear, their frustrations, their hurts, their disappointments. May this be a place of healing. May this group of people be a 
group that brings your healing in just depths, God, physical, emotional, spiritual, but really a healing of right restoration and right relationship with you. May we be like Jesus who only sees does what his father is saying and what his father is doing. Holy Spirit, I ask that as we come into communion and worship afterwards that you would just rest on us. You'd be intimate to us, that you would speak to our hearts, and that you would reveal things that we haven't had the courage to come to the surface. And you'd heal things inside of us. communion together and then uh, right afterwards we're going to go straight into some worship via singing and again I'm just going to encourage you if you're like hey you know what I just want some more prayer today or I just want to be in his presence I I encourage you to, to actually stand up and come on up and sit in these chairs you don't have to but it's an invitation we have a God of invitation and I want to invite you to do that if you just want some more prayer a lot of people in this church that have some intimate giftings of prayer. And I encourage you, release you to come and pray with anybody that's up here.